Okay, so we're welcome back to our study of the Visuddhi Maga. Today we're, Robin, where are we starting today? We're on page 110 on section 123. Aurora, can you start us off with 123? Yes, I can. Now the words, and he should apprehend, are illustrated as follows. After approaching the good friends, the kind described in the explanation of the words, then approach the good friend, the giver of a meditation subject. The meditator should dedicate himself to the blessed one, the enlightened one, or to a teacher, and he should ask for meditation subject with a sincere inclination of the heart and sincere resolution. Herein, he should dedicate himself to the Blessed One, the Enlightened One, in this way. Blessed One, I relinquish this my person to you. For without having thus dedicated himself, when living in a remote abode, he might be unable to stand fast if a frightening object made its appearance, and he might return to a village, abode, become associated with laymen, take up improper search, and come to ruin. But when he has dedicated himself in this way, no fear arises in him if a frightening object makes its appearance. In fact, only joy arises in him as he reflects. Have you not wisely already dedicated yourself to the Enlightened One? So we actually do this uh, formally when we begin a meditation course. And this is the passage that it's our, our practice is based on when we do a meditation course in our tradition in in Thailand we'll start by offering candles, flowers and incense and then taking the eight precepts formally and then we will say imahang bhagava atabhavang tumhakang parijachami which is a translation of that blessed one and then we say if you look at 126, which we're going to translate, which is basically that, I relinquish this, my person, to you, Venerable Sir. And I think we go basically through the rest of it. So after that, we we where it says, uh, in 123, it says, he should ask for the meditation with sincere inclination. It might even give a quote down below, but we actually do Pali, which says, uh, uh, I forget. Thank you. MP, could you read 125? Okay. Suppose a man had a fine piece of cassie cloth. He would feel grief if it were eaten by rats or moths, but if he gave it to a bigu needing robes, he would feel only joy if he saw the bigu tearing it up to make his patched cloak. And so it is with this. When he dedicates himself to a teacher, he should say, I relinquish this, my person to you, venerable sir. For one who has not dedicated his person thus becomes unresponsive to correction, hard to speak to, and unamenable to advice. 
or when he goes where he likes without asking the teacher. Consequently, the teacher does not help him with either material things or with the Dhamma, and he does not train him in the cryptic books. Failing to get those two kinds of help, he finds no footing in the dispensation, and he soon, come, soon comes down to misconducting himself or to the lay state. But if he has dedicated his person, he is not unresponsive to correction, does not go about as he likes, is easy to speak to, and lives only in dependence on the teacher. He gets the twofold help from the teacher and attains growth, increase, and fulfillment in the dispensation, like the elder Chala Pindapitika Tissa's pupils. Three bhikkhus came to the elder. It seems uh, one of them said, Venerable Sir, I am ready to fall from a cliff the height of 100 men if it is said to be to your advantage. The second said, Venerable Sir, I am ready to grind away this body from the heels up without remainder on a flat stone if it is said to be your advantage. The third said, Venerable Sir, I am ready to die by stopping breathing if it is said to be to your advantage. Observing, three bhikkhus are certainly capable of progress. The elder expounded the meditation subject to them. Following his advice, three attained arhanship. This is the benefit in self-dedication. Hence, it was said it was said about dedicating himself to the blessed one, the enlightened one, or to the or to a teacher. So this is the sort of level of dedication that you uh, you see in the ancient texts. Uh, the, the sort of the implication here is this is what not expected, but what was assumed to be uh, acceptable. Meaning, has uh, any of your students done that? Monthly? No, of course not. But the. Uh, the point is the comparison between that and going on YouTube and uh, or going on the internet and, and answering people's questions who you don't even know and who have very little, if any, well, you, you, you don't know if they have any dedication at all. I mean, I just mean to say that the monks in, in olden times this is the sort of the level on which they were working as far as taking students and teaching people. There are examples of monks who wouldn't even answer questions. They didn't even dine to answer when people would come and ask them questions. They said, well, this person isn't ready to hear the Dhamma, which is kind of a scary thought. But uh, again, this sort of shocking real, uh, realism, they're not, they're not playing games and they're not playing for anyone else. They're not. They're not just uh, playing a role. Thank you, Pante. Would you read one twenty-eight? With a sincere inclination of heart and sincere resolution. The meditator's inclination should be sincere in the six modes, beginning with non-greed. For it is one of such sincere inclination who arrives at one of the three kinds of enlightenment, according as it is said, 
six kinds of inclination lead to the maturing of insight of the enlightenment of the bodhisattvas. With the inclination to non-greed, bodhisattvas see the fault in greed. With the inclination to non-hate, bodhisattvas see the fault in hate. With the inclination to non-delusion, bodhisattvas see the fault in delusion. With the inclination to renunciation, bodhisattvas see the fault in the house life. With the inclination to seclusion, bodhisattvas see the fault in society. With the inclination to relinquishment, bodhisattvas see the fault in all kinds of becoming and destiny. For stream-enterers, once-returners, non-returners, those with cankers destroyed, i.e. arahats, pacheka buddhas and fully enlightened ones, whether past, future, or present, all arrived at the distinction peculiar to each by means of these same six modes. That is why you should have sincerity of inclination in these six modes. He should be wholeheartedly resolved on that. The meaning is that he should be resolved upon concentration, respect concentration, incline to concentration, be resolved upon Nibbana, respect Nibbana, incline to Nibbana. When with sincerity of inclination and wholehearted resolution in this way, he asks for a meditation subject, then a teacher who has acquired the penetration of minds can know his temperament by surveying his mental conduct. And a teacher who has not can know it by putting such questions to him as What is your temperament? What states are usually present in you? What do you like bringing to mind? What meditation subject does your mind favor? When he knows, he can expound a meditation subject suitable to the temperament. And in doing so, he can expound it in three ways. It can be expounded to one who has already learned the meditation subject by having him recite it at one or two sessions. It can be expounded to one who lives in the same place each time he comes. And to one who wants to learn it and then go elsewhere, it can be expounded in such a manner that it is neither too brief nor too long. Here in when first he is explaining the earth casino, there are nine aspects that he should explain. They are the four faults of the casino, the making of a casino, the method of development for one who has made it, the two kinds of sign, the two kinds of concentration, the seven kinds of suitable and unsuitable, the ten kinds of skillful absorption, evenness of energy, and the directions for absorption. In the case of the other meditation subjects, each should be expounded in the way appropriate to it. All this will be made clear in the directions for development. But when the meditation subject is being expounded in this way, the meditator must apprehend the sign as he listens. Apprehend the sign means that he must connect each aspect thus. This is the preceding clause. This is the subsequent clause. This is the meaning. This is its intention. This is the simile. When he listens attentively, apprehending the sign in this way, his meditation subject is well apprehended. 
Then, and because of that, he successfully attains distinction, but not otherwise. This clarifies the meaning of the words, and he must apprehend. The sign here is, is a word, nimitta is a word that's used in, a, in many different ways, or it's used in a broad sense of um, get the gist or the point, the essential uh, quality. To get a to get a sense of what the word means, it's it's used in the sense of uh, like when you see a woman and you know that that's not a man, or when you see a man and you know that that's not a woman, we call that the sign of the man or the sign of the woman. When you see a uh, chair and you realize that it's a chair, or when you see one of those objects that morphs from one thing to another, or say it. Those, tra- those transformer robots that turned from trucks into robots. So the moment it's a, it looks like a truck, that, that's the nimitta of the truck. When it expands and looks like a robot, that's the, suddenly you have the nimitta. So in general, it, it, it'll be used, as you, it's already been used, and it, it'll be used later as well in the text. In a technical sense, it's also used, we've seen it here in this chapter, used to refer to the the sign of the meditation object when it becomes pure, but still it's the same sense as being the essential quality or nature or the gist of something. Mante is uh, nimitta synonymous with the sanya? No, but the, the sanya the sanya is what apprehends the nimitta. The nimitta is, is considered to be in the object. I mean, it's a conceptual thing, but the nimitta is what is in the object or what the object presents. Uh, it's the, the sanya is what apprehends the nimitta. Okay, thank you. Uh, at this point, the, clause, the clauses approach the good friend, the giver of a meditation subject, and he should apprehend from among the 40 meditation subjects one that suits his own temperament, have been expounded in detail in all their aspects. The third chapter called The Description of Taking a Meditation Subject in the Treatise uh, on uh, Development of Concentration in the Path of Purification, composed for the purpose of gladdening good people. And there we have it, we finished the third chapter. So now we're ready to actually get into the nitty-gritty of each meditation subject. The rest, much of the rest of this section is going to be taken up with the 40 meditation subjects actually explaining how we practice them, starting with the Earth Casino. So let's go on to chapter 4. Now it was said earlier, after that he should avoid a monastery unfavorable to the development of concentration and go to live in one that is favorable. In the first place, one who finds it convenient to live with the teacher in the same monastery can live there while he is making certain of the meditation subject. If it is inconvenient there, he can live in another monastery, a suitable one, a quarter or a half or even a whole league distant. In that case, when he finds he is in doubt about, or has forgotten, 
some passage in the meditation subject, then he should do the duties in the monastery in good time and set out afterwards, going for alms on the way and arriving at the teacher's dwelling place after his meal. He should make certain about the meditation subject that day in the teacher's presence. Next day, after paying homage to the teacher, he should go for alms on his way back, and so he can return to his own dwelling place without fatigue. But one who finds no convenient place within even a league should clarify all difficulties about the meditation subject and make quite sure it has been properly attended to. Then he can even go far away and, avoiding a monastery unfavorable to development of concentration, live in one that is favorable. Herein, one that is unfavorable has any one of eighteen faults. These are 1. Largeness 2. Newness 3. Dilapidatedness 4. A nearby road 5. A pond 6. Edible leaves 7. Flowers 8. Fruits 9. Famousness 10. A nearby city 11. Nearby timber trees 12. Nearby arable fields. 13. Presence of incompatible persons. 14. A nearby port of entry. 15. Nearness to the border countries. 16. Nearness to the frontier of a kingdom. 17. Unsuitability. 18. Lack of good friends. One with any of those faults is not favorable. He should not live there. Why? Sorry, I forgot we have this one last thing to deal with, or maybe a couple of things. A little bit more to deal with before we get into the meditation subjects. This isn't perhaps all that interesting directly, but I would think indirectly it's interesting to for all of us to compare to our own dwellings, even as lay people. It's hard to actually imagine a monastery that didn't have at least one of these. I mean, they're so common. Oh, and we don't have any forests. There's a lot of neat monasteries out there. Yeah, I was saying we don't have many forests uh, in the world now. It's been cut off, so very few places, I guess. Well, there's no need for forests, right? It's just, I think the only one that I'd find difficult is number 18, right? It's easy to find, uh, it's relatively easy to find some place that's very remote, but a place that has fellows who can uh, support and encourage you in the practice, that's hard. And once you make good friends at that monastery, you should leave? No, the, no, the point is not having good friends is a bad thing. Oh, I see. These, four, these 18 things are all faults. These are all problems with monastery. He's going to explain them in detail. Why? Okay, so the first one. Firstly, people with varying aims collect in a large monastery. They conflict with each other and so neglect the duties. 
the enlightenment tree, terrace, etc. remain unswept, the water for drinking and washing is not set out. So if he thinks, I shall go to the alms resort's village for alms, and takes his bowl and robe and sets out, perhaps he sees that the duties have not been done, or that a drinking water pot is empty, and so the duty has to be done by him unexpectedly. Drinking water must be maintained. By not doing it, he would commit a wrongdoing in the breach of a duty. But if he does it, he loses time. He arrives too late at the village and gets nothing because the almsgiving is finished. Also, when he goes into retreat, he is distracted by the loud noises of novices and young bhikkhus and by acts of the community being carried out. However, he can live in a large monastery where all the duties are done and where there are none of other disturbances. Oh, Naga was asking about dilapidated. I think that's falling apart, very run down. MP, can you read the next one for uh, four, section four? Okay. In a new monastery, there is much new building activity. People criticize someone who takes no part in it. But he can live in such a monastery where the bhikkhus say, let the venerable one to the ascetic studies as much as he likes. We shall see to the building work. In a dilapidated monastery, there is much that needs repair. People criticize someone who does not see about the repairing of at least his own lodging. When he sees to the repairs, his meditation subject suffers. In a monastery with a nearby road, by a main street, visitors keep arriving night and day. He has to give up his own lodging to those who come late, and he has to go and live at uh, the root of a tree or on top of a rock, and next day it is the same. So there is no opportunity to practice his meditation subject, but he can but he can live in one where there is no such disturbances by visitors. A pond is a rock pool. Numbers of people come there for drinking water. Pupils of city-dwelling elders supported by the royal family come to do dyeing work. When they ask for vessels, wood, tubs, etc., they must be shown where these things are so he is kept all the time on the alert. If he goes with his meditation subject to sit by day, where there are many sort of edible leaves, then women vegetable gatherers singing as they pick leaves nearby endanger his meditation subject by disturbing it with sounds of the opposite sex. I think that number seven goes to the your section as well. Anyway, and where there are many sorts of flowers and shrubs in bloom, there is the same danger too. 
where there are many sorts of fruits such as mangoes, rose apples and jack fruits. People who want fruits come and ask for them and they get angry if he does not give them any or they take them by force. When walking in the monastery in the evening he sees them and asks, Why do you do so, lay followers? They abuse him as they please and even try to evict him. It's a bit, a bit specific, isn't it? It's amazing that this was, you know, written all this time ago because these kind of distractions, it seems like it's a modern problem, but obviously not. I can see kids coming to throw stones and uh, sticks at the fruits, uh, and that could be a distraction. Oh, yeah. I mean, the point is it attracts people. You have to be... Being a monastery that is unattractive is in many ways preferable for monks in meditation practice. A place that is not that comfortable, that has hardship and is maybe scary and uh, full of leeches, for example. I just know that of all these, I've probably lived in each and every one of these problem (laughs) monasteries. It's just so funny. It's so realistic, even even to outside monastery life. Just the distract, distraction level. It's it's amazing. Yeah. Also, there will be monkeys. Always the monkeys. Only in Sri Lanka, though, not in Thailand. <laughs> when he lives in a monastery that is famous and renowned in the world, like Duhina Nagiri. Hati Kuchi Seti Yagiri or Chita La Pabata. There are always people who coming to coming who want to pay homage to him, supposing that he is an Arhant, which inconveniences him. But if it suits him, he can live there at night and go elsewhere by day. In one with the nearby city objects of the opposite sex come into focus. Women pot carriers go by bumping into him with their jars and giving no room to pass. Also important people spread out carpets in the middle of the monastery and sit down. One with timber trees, nearby timber trees, where there are timber trees and osiers useful for making framework, is inconvenient because of the wood gatherers there, like the gatherers of branches and fruits already mentioned. If there are trees in a monastery, people come and cut them down to build houses with. When he has come out of his meditation room in the evening and is walking up and down in the monastery, if he sees them and asks, Why do you do so, lay followers? They abuse him as they please and even try to evict him. People make use of one with nearby arable fields quite surrounded by fields. They make a threshing floor in the middle of the monastery itself. They thresh horn there, draw it in the four courts, and cause great inconvenience. And where there is extensive property belonging to the community, the monastery attendants impound cattle belonging to families and deny the water supply to their crops. Then people bring an ear of paddy and show it to the community, saying, Look at your monastery attendants' work. For one reason or another, he has to go to the portals of the king or the king's ministers. This matter of property belonging to the community is included by a monastery that is near arable fields. 
presence of incompatible persons, where there are bhikkhus living who are incompatible and mutually hostile, when they clash and it is protested, venerable sirs do not do so, they exclaim. We no longer count now that this refuse rag wearer has come. One with a nearby water port of entry or land port of entry is made inconvenient by people constantly arriving, respectively by ship or by caravan and crowding round, asking for space for drinking water or salt. In the case of one near the border countries, people have no trust in the Buddha, etc. there. In one near the frontier of a kingdom, there is fear of kings, for perhaps one king attacks that place, thinking, he does not submit to my rule, and the other does likewise, thinking, he does not submit to my rule. A bhikkhu lives there when it is conquered by one king, and when it is conquered by the other, then they suspect him of spying, and they bring about his undoing. Unsuitability is that due to the risk of encountering visible data, etc., of the opposite sex as objects or to haunting by non-human beings. Here is a story. An elder lived in a forest, it seems. Then an ogress stood in the door of his leaf hut and sang, the elder came out and stood in the door. She went to the end of the walk and sang. The elder went to the end of the walk. She stood in a chasm, chasm, a hundred fathoms deep and sang. The elder recoiled. Then she suddenly grabbed him, saying, Venerable sir, it is not just one or two of the likes of you I have eaten. <laughs> Interesting story. A lack of good friends, or it is not possible to find a good friend as a teacher or the equivalent of a teacher or a preceptor, or the equivalent of a preceptor. A lack of good friends, there is a serious fault. One that has any of those 18 faults should be understood as unfavorable, and this is said in the commentaries. A large abode, a new abode, one tumbling down, one near a road, one with a pond, or leaves or flowers, or fruits, or one that people seek. In cities, among timber fields, where people quarrel in a port, in borderlands, on frontiers, unsuitableness and no good friend. These are the 18 instances a wise man needs to recognize and give them full, as wide as a berth, as any footpad hunted road. One that has the five factors beginning with not too far from and not too near to the armed resort is called favorable. For this is said by the Blessed One. And how has a lodging five factors bhikkhus? Here bhikkhus, a lodging is not too far, not too near and has a path for going and coming. It is little frequented by day with little sound and few voices by night. There is little contact with gadflies, flies, wind, burning sun and creeping things. One who lives in that lodging easily obtains robes, arms, food, lodging and the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick. In that lodging there are elder bhikkhus living who are learned, versed in scriptures, observers of the tamma, 
observers of the Vinaya, observers of the codes, and when from time to time one asks them questions, how is this venerable soul, what is the meaning of this? Then those venerable ones reveal the unrevealed, explain the unexplained, and remove doubt about the many things that raise doubts. This is because is how a lodging has five factors. These are the details for the clause. After that he should avoid a monastery unfavorable to the development of concentration and go to live in one that is favorable. Then he should sever the lesser impediments. One living in such a favorable monastery should sever any minor impediments that he may still have, that is to say, long head hair, nails, body hair should be cut, mending and patching of old ropes should be done, or those that are soiled should be dyed. If there is a stain on the bowl, the bowl should be baked, the bed, chair, etc. should be cleaned up. These are the details for the clause. Then he should sever the lesser impediments. Detailed instructions for development. Now with the clause, and not overlook any of the directions for development, the time has come for the detailed exposition of all meditation subjects, starting with the Earth Casina. The Earth Casina. When a bhikkhu has thus severed the lesser impediments, then on his return from his alms round after his meal, and after he has got rid of drowsiness due to the meal, he should sit down comfortably in a secluded place and apprehend the sign in earth that is either made up or not made up. For this is said, one who is learning the earth kasina apprehends the sign in earth that is either made up or not made up, that is bounded, not unbounded, limited, not unlimited, with a, a periphery, not without periphery, circumscribed, not uncircumscribed, either the size of bushel, supa, or the size of a, a saucer, sarava. He sees, he sees to it that the sign is well apprehended, well attended to, well defined. Having done that, and seeing it is advantageous, and perceiving it as a treasure, building up respect for it, making it dear to him. He anchors his mind to that subject, thinking, Surely in this way I shall be freed from aging and death, secluded from sense desires. He enters upon the dwells in the first jhana. Said in the old commentary, one who is learning the earth kasina. That's just a comment. One who That's is... just a footnote, Sankar. Okay, sorry. Herein, when in a previous becoming a man has gone forth into homelessness in the dispensation, or outside of it with the rishis going forth, and has already produced the jhana, tetrad, or pentad on the earth kasina, and so has such merit and the support of past practice of jhana as well, then the sign arises in him on earth that is not made up, that is to say on a plowed area or on a threshing floor, as in the elder Malika's case. It seems that while the elder, while the venerable one was looking at a plowed area, the sign arose in him, the size of that area. He extended it and attained, attained the jhana pentad. Then, by establishing insight with the jhanas as the basis for it, he reached arahanship. 
So again, this is referring to the sign and something being made up. Made up means he's going to explain how to make up a disk of earth that just gives you the impression of earth. But for some people, he's saying people who have done it in the past and who have good gusala from their past, they're able to look at a plowed field and see earth and enter into the earth casino just that way. That's called not made up. Is this Samatha meditation? Yes, this is all Samatha. This whole section is about Samatha meditation. So uh, it's going to be a long, long, long section all about the many, many types of meditation that could very much be called Samatha because for the most part they don't have anything directly to do with insight. Now a couple of them, a few of them, are involved with what we call sabhava dhamma, which are means they are really existing phenomena, like the four elements, the qualities of the Buddha. All those qualities are actually dhammas that that uh, existed in the in the Buddha. But be, but it's still there. There in this whole section, they are approached from a conceptual point of view. Even those and all the rest as well, so it's very much samatha and has nothing to do directly with insight into nature of reality and suffering and so on. But when a man has no such previous practice, he should make a casino, guarding against the four faults of a casino and not overlooking any of the directions of the for the meditation subject learned from the teacher. Now the four faults of the earth casino are due to the intrusion of blue, yellow, red, or white. So instead of using clay of such colors, he should make the casino of clay, like in the stream of the Ganga, which is the color of the dawn. And he should make it not in the middle of the monastery, in a place where novices, etc., are about but on the confines of the monastery in a screened place, either under an over managing rock or in a leaf hut. He can make it either portable or as a fixture. Of these, a portable one should be made by tying rags of leather or matting onto four sticks and smearing thereon a disc of the size already mentioned, using clay picked clean of grass, roots, gravel and sand, and well kneaded. At the time of the preliminary work, it should be laid on the ground and looked at. A fixture should be made by knocking stakes into the ground in the form of a lotus calyx, lacing them over with creepers. If the clay is insufficient, then other clay should be put underneath and the disc a span and four fingers across made on top of that with the quite pure dawn-colored clay. For it was with reference only to measurement that it was said above either the size of a bushel or the size of a saucer. But that is bounded, not unbounded, was said to show its delimitedness. So having thus made it delimited and of the size prescribed, he should scrape it down with a stone trowel. A wooden trowel turns it a bad color, so that it should not be employed, and make it as even as the surface of a drum. Then he should sweep the place out 
On his return, he should seat himself on a well-covered chair with legs that span a four foot high, prepared in a place that is two and a half cubits, that is, two and a half times elbow to fingertip from the casino desk. From the casino does not appear plainly to him if he sits further off than that. And if he sits nearer than that, faults in the casino appear. If he sits higher up, he has to look at it with his neck bent. And if he sits lower down, his knees ache. So he's actually recommending this to be done in a chair? Interesting, isn't it? I'm not quite clear. It, sometimes chair in in these would mean a, just a platform, but it does sound like, yeah, he's talking about sitting in a chair. Interesting. That is very interesting. Starting contemplation. So after seating himself in the way stated, he should review the dangers and sense desires in the way beginning. Sense desires give little employment and arouse longing for the escape from sense desires, for the renunciation that is the means to the surmounting of all suffering. He should next arouse joy of happiness by recollecting the special qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Then awe by thinking, now this is the way of renunciation entered upon by all the Buddhas, Pacheka Buddhas and noble disciples, and then eagerness by thinking, in this way I shall surely come to know the taste of the bliss of seclusion. After that he should open his eyes moderately, apprehend the sign, and so proceed to develop it. If he opens his eyes too wide, they get fatigued and the list becomes too obvious, which prevents the sign becoming apparent to him. If he opens them too little, the disc is not obvious enough, and his mind becomes drowsy, which also prevents the sign becoming apparent to him. So he should develop it by apprehending the sign, Nimitta, keeping his eyes open moderately, as if he, he were seeing the reflection of his face, Mukhanimitta, on the surface of a looking glass. The color should not be reviewed. The characteristic should not be given attention. But rather, while not ignoring the color, attention should be given by setting the mind on the concept as the most outstanding mental datum, relegating the color to the position of a property of its physical support. That conceptual state can be called by anyone he likes among the names for earth, Patavi such as Earth, Patavi, the Great One, Mahi, the Friendly One, Medini, Ground, Bhumi, the Provider of Wealth, Vasudha, the Bearer of Wealth, Vasudhara, etc., whichever suits his manner of perception. Still, Earth is also a name that is obvious, so it can be developed with the obvious one by saying Earth, Earth. It should be adverted to now with eyes open, now with eyes shut. And he should go on developing it in this way a hundred times, a thousand times, and even more than that, until the learning sign arises. So here's where we get this indication, which is interesting for me, and I use this reference a lot, when people balk at the idea of actually saying 
rising, falling, or pain, pain, or so on. Thinking, you know, what kind of a meditation is that? And it's kind of a silly thing because this is an ancient meditation. A mantra or a word is is really how they would practice meditation in ancient times, as we can see from this text. So it's certainly not something new or or uh, radical. This idea. They should be glad they don't have a what is it like a worm nod nod corpse as a meditation subject. Yeah, well, we do down with uh, down below. Oh, you mean in, in our tradition? Or? Yes, yes, I mean the, the, the people that are complaining about, about rising and falling. They should, you know, they should think about the worm nod corpse and be glad that they have the rising and falling. Ah, uh, no, I'm I'm thinking of the fact that people complain or or are surprised that you actually have to use a word. And so this passage is kind of giving the idea that uh, it's directly giving the idea that the word is very much a I mean it shouldn't really be in doubt if you think about it but the idea of using a mantra is a very ancient thing when while he's developing in this way it comes into focus as he adverts with his eyes shut exactly as it does with his eyes open then the learning sign is said to have been produced after its production, he should no longer sit in that place. He should return to his own quarters and go on developing it in that, mm, sitting there. But in order to avoid the delay of foot washing, a pair of single-soled sandals and a walking stick are desirable. Then, if the new concentration vanishes through some unsuitable encounter, he can put his sandals on, take his walking stick, and go back to the place to reapprehend the sign there. When he returns, he should seat himself comfortably and develop it by reiterated reaction to it and by striking at it with thought and applied thought. As he does so, as he does so the hindrances eventually become suppressed, the defilements subside, the mind becomes concentrated with excess concentration and the counterpart sign arises. The difference between the earlier learning sign and the counterpart sign is this. In the learning sign, any thought in the casina is apparent, but the counterpart sign appears as if breaking out from the learning sign and a hundred times, a thousand times more purified like a looking-glass disc drawn from its case, like a mother-of-pearl dish well-washed, like the moon's disc coming out from behind a cloud, like cranes against a thundercloud. But it has neither color nor shape, for if it had, it would be cognizable by the eye, gross, susceptible of comprehension, and stamped with the three characteristics. For it is born only of perception in one who has obtained concentration, being a mere mode of appearance. But as soon as it arises, the hindrances are quite suppressed, the defilements subside, and the mind becomes concentrated in excess concentration. Now, concentration is of two kinds. That is to say, access concentration and absorption concentration. The mind becomes concentrated in two ways, that is, on the plane of access and on the place of obtainment. Herein, 
the mind becomes concentrated on the plane of access by the abandonment of the hindrances and on the plane of obtainment by the manifestation of the jhana factors. Hi, Ryan. We are on page 121, just starting section 33 here. The difference between the two kinds of concentration is this. The factors are not strong in access. It is because they are not strong that when access has arisen, the mind now makes the sign its object and now re-enters the life continuum, just as when a young child is lift, lifted up and stood on its feet. It repeatedly falls down on the ground. But the factors are strong in absorption. It is because they are strong that when the absorption concentration has arisen, the mind, having once interrupted the flow of the life continuum, carries on with a stream of profitable impulsion, impulse, impulsion for a whole night and for a whole day, just as a healthy man after rising from his seat could stand for a whole day. The arousing of counterpart sign which arises together with excess concentration is very difficult. Therefore, if he is able to arrive at absorption, absorption in that same session by extending the sign, it is good. If not, then he must guard the sign diligently as if it is were the foot uh, fortress of a wheel-turning monarch. I think that's fetus. All right, uh, so so guard the sign, nor count the cost, and what is gained will not be lost. Who fails to have his guard maintained will lose each time what he has gained. Herein, the way of guarding it is this, abode, resort, and speech, and person, the food, the climate, and the posture, eschew these seven different kinds, whenever found unsuitable. But cultivate the suitable, for one perchance so doing finds he needs not wait too long until absorption shall his wish fulfill. Herein, an abode is unsuitable if, while he lives in it, the unarisen sign does not arise in him or is lost when it arises and where unestablished mindfulness fails to become established and the unconcentrated mind fails to become concentrated. That is suitable in which the sign arises and becomes confirmed, in which mindfulness becomes established and the mind becomes concentrated in the elder Adanya T. resident at Nagapabata. So if a monastery has many abodes, he can try them one by one, living in what each for three days, and stay on where his mind becomes unified. For it was due to suitability of abode that 500 bhikkhus reached Arhanship while still dwelling in the lesser Naga cave in Tabapani Island after apprehending their meditation subject there. There is no counting the stream enterers who have reached Arhanship there after reaching the noble plain elsewhere, so too in the monastery of Chitala Pabata and others. So, um, just something, I mean, it should be sort of clear, but it's worth mentioning 
that as with the unsuitable monastery and the uh, Bali Bodha in the past in the last chapter, the sort of things that were impediments to practice, some of them are not so for insight meditation. So again, this is only applicable. Some of these things are only applicable if you are um, practicing samatha. All this, this talk about the, the character types, where you have to put a, this type of person in this type of room, and so on. A lot of this just goes out the window when you're dealing with insight meditation to an extent. And to extent to an extent, you want an insight meditation practitioner to have a calm and and relaxing environment. But on the other hand, you're not trying to keep the problems away from the meditator. You don't do them any benefit by secluding them from these things or making things easier for them. So uh, a lot of this isn't. A lot of this is only because in samatha meditation you you are really trying to block out the problems. You're trying to seclude the mind from anything that might give rise to defilement rather than learning about the defilements. You know, it's in quite this, uh, contrast to the Satipatthana Sutta, which, of course, suggests that you are mindful even of the unwholesome states and certainly mindful of everything else that arises. An arms resort village lying to the north or south of the lodging, not too far, within one kosa and a half, and where alms food is easily obtained, is suitable. The opposite kind is unsuitable. Speech that included in the 32 kinds of aimless talk is, unex is unsuitable, for it leads to the disappearance of the sign, but talked based on the 10 examples of talk is suitable, though even that should be discussed with moderation. Person, one not given to aimless talk, who has the special qualities of virtue, etc., by acquaintanceship, with whom the unconcentrated mind becomes concentrated, or the concentrated mind becomes more so, is suitable. One who is much concerned with his body, who is addicted to aimless talk, is unsuitable, for he only creates disturbances, like muddy water added to clear water. And it was owing to one such as this that the attainments of the young bhikkhu who lived at Katapabata vanished, not to mention the sign. Food. Sweet food suits one. Sour food another. Climate. A cool climate suits one. A warm one another. So when he finds that by using certain food or by living in a certain climate he is comfortable, or his unconcentrated mind becomes concentrated, or his concentrated mind becomes more, more so, then that food or that climate is suitable. Any other food or climate is unsuitable. Postures. Walking suits one, standing or sitting or lying down suits another. So he should try them like the abode for three days each, and that posture is suitable in which his con unconcentrated mind becomes concentrated or his concentrated becomes mind becomes more so. Any other should be understood as unsuitable. So he should avoid the seven unsuitable kinds and cultivate the suitable. For when he practices in this way, assiduously cultivating the sign, 
then he need not wait too long until absorption shall his wish fulfill. I think I'm going to suggest that we stop there and we'll come back for Polly. One quick question, Bhante. Uh -huh. So, I mean, it sounds like the bhikkhu would go to a lot of trouble to find exactly the right spot. Would he then stay at that same monastery and in, in, the, in the abode that was suitable to him and with everything the same for the whole time he was a bhikkhu? I mean, potentially, yeah, but I think the, the, the idea here is for a period of time. You know, it would be three months during the rains retreat or six months or or however long it took. So this was more in the beginning when uh, when establishing the meditation practice? I mean, it depends on the person. But yeah, a lot of the times there's obligations to teach others, to travel, to you know, move on to insight meditation, which then requires finding a new teacher potentially. Okay, thank you. I'm going to, I've been, I got a call to go and meet someone, so I might be a little late. Let's, let's aim for 10 or 15 minutes. I sh I'll try to be back in 10 minutes, but it might be more like 15, so hang in there. I'll be back soon. Thank you. Thank you, Bob.